Today, our guest on the Alpha Progression Podcast is Mano Hanselmans. Mano is a hypertrophy coach, scientist, and author of many training and nutrition-related studies. Welcome to the 134th episode of the Alpha Progression Podcast. I'm Benjamin, and I'm excited to have a very special guest on our podcast today. I'm talking about Menno Hanselmans. Since I cannot speak Dutch and he cannot speak German, we keep the conversation in English. I hope that's fine with you. Just a quick note before we start. If you want to get into the best shape possible this summer, try out our Alpha Progression app to plan and track your workouts for optimal muscle growth. You can download it now in the App Store or Play Store. I'm sure you will like it. And now, enjoy the interview. Menno, I'm glad to welcome you to the Alpha Progression Podcast. How are you? And please introduce yourself briefly for listeners who don't know you yet. Good. Yeah, um, so I'm an exercise scientist, uh, online coach, still do some online coaching, but mainly I teach other people how to become their own uh, personal trainer or coach in my PT courses. I've written a book. And most of my time I spent on evidence-based fitness of various kinds. I do scientific research. It's all geared towards making people, uh, helping people make more evidence-based decisions about how to develop themselves, primarily physically, but also mentally in terms of productivity and self-control and those kind of things. But I mostly focus on the physical side, muscle growth, strength development, fat loss. I've been following you for a long time, I guess... It's because I can relate to you and your past a lot because I also studied economics mm -hmm. in the UK as well and then switched to the fitness scene roughly eight years ago. Could you let us know what triggered you to make that switch to the fitness scene? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was an evidence or I was a business consultant before I was became an evidence-based fitness practitioner and that was not really my passion it was just a career path that was kind of expected of me by society and you know what you're supposed to do but not really what my passion was about so i set up well i started writing about fitness initially just i didn't really have plans to make it a business or anything i just felt that i had things that uh, could help people and things that were worth saying so i started writing articles and they were received super well so people started asking me for coaching that became a business and then people start asking me how I get my results with my clients and that became the PT course business. So it kind of naturally grew from there and that's also a career path that uh, I would or a transition trajectory that I would often recommend people sometimes called the lean startup where you don't just forsake your whole career and start something new but you gradually ease into it until you have Proof that it actually is generating revenue, there is demand for your services, you have an actual product, and then you completely give up the other career. And then you are not so concerned about the short term to make as much money as you can in the short term and to make bullshit. So, mm -hmm. so, so, so usually the stuff you do which brings in money in the short term is bullshit. So mm -hmm. that's also my advice. Um, and, and how did you get started with um, being part of conducting studies? Well, my bachelor's thesis was already published and my education was very heavily focused on scientific research. So I, I had a very strong background in that already. 
And because everything I did was very evidence-based, at some point there was just a topic, rest intervals, where I felt like, okay, this is just completely wrong. There isn't a good review on this that actually summarizes the literature well and really represents the existing randomized control trials. So I wrote that paper and then they were like, well, actually this completely goes against the prevailing wisdom. You're saying that maybe long rest intervals are not just worse, but maybe even better. And then I invited Brad Schoenfeld to, uh, to help finalize the paper and also argue for the theory of uh, the conventional theory more. And then they were like, okay, now, now it's good. We, cannot, uh, we can't really argue with this anymore. So they published it in Sports Medicine, which at the time I think was the highest impact factor journal in exercise science, which was also kind of a bucket list, bucket list thing for me and a test to see if, you know, if what I was writing, if it could actually pass peer review in one of the top journals in the world in this field. And after that, um, yeah, just did some, some more research. I got involved with other researchers uh, based on my publications online. I know that a lot of professors are following my Instagram, for example. So they started contacting me, hey, can you collaborate with this paper? And I do quite some work with Iran, for example, where I help people um, make better papers and help them with uh, methodological choices, statistical analysis. So it naturally snowballed from there. Whereas I still do my own research, but I also work with a lot of universities in a more uh, consultation fashion. For example, for the University of Cambridge's Reach Science Society, I currently also do review work I'm a peer reviewer for sports medicine now, where I originally published, and Journal of Human Kinetics. So, yeah, it's um, just connections, doing good work, and, um, yeah, above all, doing good science. Very interesting, very interesting. Let's start with nutrition. Mm -hmm. You seem to keep a reasonably low body fat percentage year-round. Before we dive deeper into that, topic first of all is my assumption correct or do i only see the same pictures of you over and over again up until about two years ago basically mid-pandemic i did and after that i started bulking a lot more ah, because okay. i felt like i was actually i even lost some muscle because of kind of kind of perma cutting and since then i've been doing a lot more bulking Before that, yeah, I maintained very lean condition for like eight years or something. Okay, because my actual question would be, what is your motivation for not committing to longer gaining phases or <laughs> to gaining phases at all? But actually, you have already answered it. Mm -hmm. So I guess now you, you called it perma-cutting. Was it perma-cutting or was it uh, just main? maintaining a very low body fat percentage or did you also cycle in weight like uh, you gained a bit of weight and then you didn't like the weight and then you cut it again and you call this perma cutting yeah i mean there were some kind of mini bulk phases and ah. not super structured bulk phases maintenance that becomes more of a lean bulk but not like months where i'm really focused on getting into slight energy surplus and staying there and making sure I'm on that, that sweet spot energy surplus where you're mostly gaining muscle and not too much fat, which I've been doing for the last two years. And that was mostly because I felt like, yeah, I'm pretty much at my, at my 90 max at the moment and I can do whatever I want. Uh, I can try to bulk, but it's not going to be effective anyway. Uh, or I can um, just stay lean and then you know, reap, the re reap the rewards of um, the work I've done so far and just maintain this which wasn't too effortful 
but in the end is still you know what wasn't ideal for muscle growth probably and i didn't maintain a full photo shoot slash contact condition i think that's just completely impossible for mm. anyone especially if you're not on a lot of drugs <laughs> so I, I usually stay more like 10% body fat, like six-pack lean, and then I could go into photo shoot condition in a matter of about two months, and contest shape is still quite a bit out from that. But we are talking so, about real 10%, so not 10% yeah, like yeah, most exactly. people think, which is 20% or 15%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like lean. real team percent, 10%, meaning full six-pack. So I think most muscular guys, they have like abs when they're 15%, and indeed most people that think they're 10% are like 15%. Yes. You said it wasn't very difficult for you to keep that low of a body fat percentage. Was it eight years that you kept that body fat percentage? Or? Mostly, yeah. Going lower, not not That's a long time, not, okay. not a lot of time. It's going higher. Okay, okay, okay. Um, has the degree of difficulty of keeping that body fat percentage changed? So was it more difficult? I, I, I would suspect it to be more difficult in the beginning, let's say the first year, And then getting more and more, it's getting easier. Am I right? Mm -hmm, definitely. I think like many people have the idea that a body fat percentage is either physically sustainable or not physically sustainable. Like there is some magical power that's just gonna, at some month, say, you know, it's enough now. Uh, up you go in body fat level. But that's not what happens. It's it's essentially lack of diet adherence. At some point, you just can't stomach it anymore. Either you deliberately don't want to be that lean anymore. Maybe the stress level is too high. It's just too difficult. You're always hungry. Or at some point you just succumb to the hunger or um, yeah, you, you eat more than uh, you should to maintain that body fat level. And for most people, that's really the thing. It's the mental side. And that's in large part due to appetite management, learning how to have social eating events. Because for most people, yes, you can maintain 10% body fat or so when your life is completely steady and everything is controlled but then when you go on holiday or when there are friends coming over you're in unfamiliar surroundings or you have to do something in your life that gives you more stress maybe it's something for your job or uh, moving house and then things break down so if you get better at dieting which is in, in large part a skill in particular appetite management stress management just meal planning just the simple practical stuff as well then it becomes easier to maintain a low body fat level. Mm -hmm, okay. And what habits help you the most in staying lean? Or not now, but during that eight years? Mm -hmm. So some specific habits you developed during that time? A lot. Uh, a big part is mindset, especially when you want to have social eating events, when you go out. How do you deal with uh, friends and family that want to eat other things? Okay, how do you do that? Uh, planning. Because I think that's the most challenging mm -hmm. thing for people, eating out with others who don't diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of things um, that go into that. And I think one of the most important things is how you perceive the criticism. So a big part of it is also planning. I think a lot of people, they have this idea that when they're at home, they have to do meal planning. They have to think about what they eat. But when they're with other people, they kind of give up that control and they just assume that they have to eat whatever is being served or they go out with friends and they make no effort to actually decide where they're so it's going. It's black or white. Yes. And 
if you don't know where you're going, then of course, yeah, you are at the mercy of the menu. And if you haven't checked the menu, then you are also at the mercy of having to make decisions about your diet when you're already hungry, when you don't know if you have backup options. So I, in, the, in that scenario, at a minimum, I would make sure that at home I have protein and fillers, which means that I can always go home and I know I'm not going to be hungry and I am going to get my protein in. So basically, worst case scenario, I just eat nothing. I can go there, I just go there for the social company, and I can go home and eat. And, and, and you don't mind if everyone looks weird at you because you're not eating anything and everyone is eating, obviously? Right, so that's a different thing. Uh, that comes to social pressure, right? Which is, which is a different aspect of it. I think with social pressure, um, a big part is that you make it clear what your um, goals are and your intentions. And you also, you stick to your principles. So a lot of people, they go kind of halfway. For example, they try to eat healthy, but then they do succumb to social pressure. And that essentially incentivizes other people to persuade you. If you're saying, yeah, no, I eat healthy, so I'm not going to eat this. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe normally I do this, just I have some digestive issues. And then they're like, nah, eat it. Come on, eat it. Uh, don't be a party pooper. And then you succumb and then they know, okay, so if Menno's not cooperating, you just push and he'll be like we want him to be, right? So that's, that's the behavior that you're then creating. Whereas if you're immovable and you're, but you're also not that guy, right? When, when you're at like everything they eat, you know, that's deep fried. Like, you know how many calories that I have? You know, those are empty calories. People don't like that either, right? So you have to just be nice, but do your own thing. And that can be either actively telling people how you like to um, or why you do what you do, which is a framework that I usually call lead, detach, or follow. So either you lead and then you have to actively lead. You have to tell people how they do it. They'll probably ask you for advice. And you say exactly why you do what you do, why it benefits you, like why you like being lean, why you feel better, etc. Or you can detach and you just let them do their thing, you do your thing, but then you have to be immovable. Like you can't do, you can't do it halfway, which is where a lot of people go wrong. They kind of detach, but then they do make some remarks or they kind of detach and then do succumb to some social pressure. And that doesn't work. You have to just stick to your thing. What if you attempted to drink alcohol or to eat lots of candy and also um, if you are surrounded by people so are you a proponent of not drinking anything alcohol and not mm -hmm. eating candy at all or not because i didn't drink alcohol for i think six years it was very easy for me because i had a strict rule and everyone knew i never drink alcohol so no one asked me to oh, benny drink something stuff like this but um three years ago i decided to start drinking again so uh, occasionally um mm -hmm. and i find it, it it doesn't bother me a lot just a little bit um but i find it a bit more difficult to not drink too frequently because i don't have a strict rule and people don't see a rule because there is no rule sometimes i drink sometimes not and then they they push me sometimes I, mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me a lot but i can imagine many people um who are bothered by this so what would you say not drinking at all not eating candy at all it's better um, it, it depends a lot on the person i think 
there is a lot of value in having very strict rules, just yes or no, if you are completely happy with that. So it has to be a choice. You have to actively say, okay, drinking for me is just not worth it. And I get a lot of extra value out of not even considering it. Because as you say, when you drink, sometimes you also get the, the, the cost essentially of having to make the decision every time. So you, you spend extra decision mental fatigue, yeah. Um, yeah, decision mm -hmm. fatigue on it. So I think that there is a lot of merit to that, but there is also something to be said for diminishing returns to alcohol and like one or two consumptions make an evening a lot nicer. Yeah. Um, it's a drug, so it has a relatively um, strong effect compared to other foods um, on your well-being or if you like dr being drunk at least or tipsy. I like it. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly a case to be made for that. And if if you don't have rules for yourself, then you just have to let other people basically know that either know that you're going to be pushed or uh, you just decide at some point and then stick to it. Mm. But you can also just every evening ad hoc decide, yes, I'm drinking today. No, I'm not drinking today. And then also you can show up and say, okay, today, tonight I'm drinking. Tonight I'm not drinking. Mm. And... But if the, the problem is mainly when you say, I'm not drinking, and people say, ah, come on, and then they do drink, then they're going to push you more, <laughs> right? Which is, might be fine if, if you're okay with being pushed and you think that's, that won't affect you, but evidently in the past it did. <laughs> so I think that's usually not a winning scenario. In terms of alcohol, I think one of the most important things is, is A, having that backup food. I call, sometimes call that emergency food. Available for when you get home. And also being satiated already, because alcohol has... Two negative effects on top of the high energy intake that alcohol typically has it increases rather than decreases hunger it's the only macronutrient alcohol is actually a macronutrient that increases your appetite rather than decreases it so it has a high energy content yet it increases um, your hunger and it also has a strong disinhibiting effect basically meaning it reduces your self-control and that makes it extra hard when you're also hungry, to make good choices. So it's extra important to have a plan in advance, not be hungry already when you come to the restaurant or wherever you're going, and to know that if you go home, you don't have to be hungry because it really sucks when it's like two o'clock at night and you come home and all you have some snacks and stuff and you are super hungry. Right? That, then it's a last loss scenario because either you're gonna be super hungry and if you're like me, I, I cannot sleep when yeah, I'm hungry. It's just neither. impossible. Right. So some people can just go to bed and problem solved. But uh, if that's not the case, either you're going to stay up a long time and suffer hunger, or you're going to eat crap, or you have to make like a whole meal at two o'clock at night when you're tipsy. That's also not really uh, great. So then you're, you know that you're going to be in a lose-lose-lose situation. And planning helps a lot with uh, ameliorating that. Do you like to be tipsy or even drunk? Do you drink? I respond very poorly to alcohol. I'm, um, oh, so you have to drink a lot? No, I'm, uh, I'm actually super sen I'm sensitive to it now in terms of getting the, the intoxication effect. It's just that the intoxication effect for me is like in terms of uppers and downer, alcohol is like 110% downer for me. Mm. I just get tired. Oh, okay. That's it. Maybe 30 minutes, I feel like the, um, what most people think I feel, the tipsiness, like um, a bit disinhibited. But after that, I just get tired. Like okay. everything, I just have like mental fog, no libido, no interest in anything. It's just, just tired. 
Okay, so you don't drink, or you don't drink often, I guess. Yeah, basically never. No, okay. What do you think about diet breaks? Would you recommend higher weight loss rates combined with diet breaks or slower weight loss rates combined with no diet breaks? Would you differentiate between short diet breaks of only one or two days and long diet breaks of a couple of weeks? I think in the first part of the question, you already frame the practical question very well. Meaning the question is not whether you diet break or not. It's whether you diet more slowly or more aggressively with breaks. Or you finish the diet more quickly and then you have more time to bulk. And that part is crucial to understand because most research at this point, and most people I think, just look at it from the perspective of either you're doing breaks or not, as if they are free. Yeah. But they're not free. They cost time. And you're still not bulking. So you're still, still restricted to some degree. More than a bulk, during a bulk at least. So most research finds that diet breaks essentially do nothing. They just pause the diet. They don't influence lean mass retention. They don't increase fat loss. They don't improve diet adherence either. That's interesting. Big one. Yes. And we, we recently conducted a trial, uh, Cetler et al. published this year. Um, the ice cap study was another really big one, really good one that was published, I think, two years ago or so. And I think those two studies have really destroyed the credibility of, of diet breaks because they show very convincingly uh, in both counts there are essentially no benefits not for body composition not for mental aspects and both studies um, tested a lot of outcomes like not just diet adherence in terms of objective adherence like how well they actually stuck to the diet but also how satisfied they were with the diet how hungry they were uh, men mental mood questionnaires all of these things so they were really comprehensive and in both studies there was like a trend for one thing to be better in the diet break group but not in the not replicated in the other study so it's very very tentative and it's like one out of seven measures in both cases and then you have to weigh that against the fact that you could have just dieted more slowly and we know that dieting more slowly is good it's better for body recomposition if you were dieting too aggressively to begin with it's also going to be better for muscle retention for strength development Or, like I said, you can get the diet over with quicker and then start lean bulking already. Plus, I think one of the most important things is that since the research shows that the diet break is, well, just a break, it just pauses everything. And afterwards, any problems that you were facing before, they're still going to be there. So you're going to run into the exact same problems before, which gave you the need to do a diet break in the first place. Which means that it's, it's a very, it's a band-aid strategy. Right? If you're not doing a contest prep or something which is inherently unsustainable, and then, okay, I get it, maybe you just you need that break. That's but but why, why not bulk instead of the break, even in the contest prep? Yeah, I mean, for, for one week, bulking is, is, is technically possible, and I would actually frame it to clients like that. For example, when clients go on holiday, I tell them, it's not a diet break, we just do a one-week mini bulk. Mm -hmm. because, but in practice, you know, often you do end up more like a maintenance than being at the perfect lean bulk energy intake right from the beginning, because that's just very difficult to, mm. um, to, to implement that practically. Mm. And it doesn't matter how long the diet break is, so one day, two days, one month, two months? Yeah, I think usually if it's one or two days, they would call it a refeed, most people. Mm. And if it's longer, you call it a diet break. And if it's longer than, say, two weeks, then it's just it's not really a diet break. It's just you're doing something else. <laughs> it's a maintenance phase or a bulk. But it's it's... It's all pretty arbitrary, the, the jargon. 
if one aims to um, get as muscular as possible and as lean as possible in the long term, would you ever recommend maintenance phases or always being cyclical, so always being in a lean bulk or a cut? For optimal results, always bulking or cutting is most likely okay. best because the die break research and also the, the ice cap study, it actually tested as well what the effect was of a, a maintenance phase or at least a week or two weeks, I think it was, maybe one or two, at the end of the study, and it didn't make a difference in results. And we mm -hmm. also know from the research on like metabolic damage, I, I did a review on that, which basically concluded there is no such thing, and there's only adaptation, that you can maintain a certain body fat long, level longer. It doesn't do anything to your metabolism. Your metabolism just, uh, just responds to current inputs, what's your current body fat level, what's your current energy intake, what's your current level of muscle mass, That's what your metabolism responds to. It doesn't have like a, a history function or something. Mm -hmm. Do you have an optimal ratio between time during bulking and time during cutting in mind? Like four to one or 10 to one or just cut whenever you have accumulated too much body fat? Theoretically, there's not really an optimal ratio and you could kind of mix and mash. Um, in practice, that doesn't work though, because for one, it's, it's a nightmare to measure your progression. If you're not bulking for at least two weeks, it's very difficult. For cutting, it's easier. You can cut even for one day, you can do a mini cut one week or something, because as soon as you go into energy deficit, you start losing fat. With bulking, for one, the sweet spot is a lot more narrow. With cutting, it's like, you're in energy deficit, good. You're in greater energy deficit, you lose more fat. You're in too much energy deficit, then you start losing muscle, that's bad. But you have quite a range where you are moving in the right direction. And with bulking, at least for a natural trainee, there is a very narrow sweet spot for ideal results. If you're at maintenance, you're advanced trainee in particular, just nothing happens. You're just maintaining. If you go over that sweet spot, then you get a lot of fat gain. So most research finds that if they compare two different energy surpluses, there's a very narrow sweet spot, whereas the group with the bigger energy surplus, they gain essentially no more muscle. Like it's a trivial difference in strength and muscle growth. But there is a big difference in fat gain. So basically, as soon as you go over the optimum sweet spot for muscle growth, which is very, very small energy surplus, just you can calculate it essentially. A kilo of muscle growth is like 1,800 calories net metabolizable energy density stored in the body. Divide by 30, you're looking at like, what, 60 calories per day net energy surplus or something. It's not a lot. And then you're gaining a kilo of muscle per month, right? That's, that's nice. Mm. So it, you can just mathematically deduce that the optimal energy surplus is really, really small. And it, it's not easy to be to know what that exact energy intake is. You kind of need to look at your progression over time and see, okay, now I'm maintaining. That means I can add a little bit more. Now I'm gaining fat. It means I have to gain a little bit less. And then worst of all, it's, it's dynamic because now you know what your ideal energy surplus is at your current activity level, body weight, and current type of meal plan. But then when you change all of that, so later on, for example, maybe you did the cutting phase, you want to get back to bulking, and your body weight's five kilos lower, you, you don't know what your ideal energy surplus is. You know it's going to be lower than it was before because your weight is lower. So doing like a one-week bulk or something uh, in practice just doesn't work. So in that sense, I would say bulking, probably you want to do it ideally for, say, a month if we have to put a... Uh, a marker on it. Cutting you can do with mini cuts. I like that. I do a lot of mini cuts both myself and in my clients. And then you can just basically uh, continue bulking where you left off. 
but the bulking phases have to be a bit longer. As to the ratio, if you do things really well, in my experience, you can have like a six to one ratio between mm. bulking and cutting. So you bulk six times more than you cut, meaning you cut maybe one or two months per year, which is mm. nice. At least it should be three to one. So you should bulk at least three times more than you bulk. I think if you're doing more, then you are falling into the pitfall that many people fall into where they bulk excessively. Or, not a big pitfall, they spend too much time at maintenance. Especially people that have kind of gotten the taste of what it's like to be six-pack lean, uh, which is kind of addictive. Then they become really scared of, of gaining any fat. And it's not just women. Like this idea, there's, I think a lot of people think that just this applies to women. A lot of men have this problem as well. They, they, they don't really bulk anymore. They think they're, they're bulking, but their weight's just the same. And then over the course of months, when they're supposed to be bulking, you look at their log and it's like, okay, so you bulked essentially one out of six months. And the other five months you just maintained, which means nothing happens because you're too advanced for that. Like a novice, yeah, you can recomp at maintenance. Advanced trainee, not going to happen anymore. Have you recomped at maintenance during your eight years of maintenance? Nope. No, I was too <laughs> <Whoa>, Okay, <laughs> that's a bit frustrating. <laughs> Eight years. Okay, I mean, okay. before that, I was already in. Yeah. I was already a fitness model, right? So I was mm. already advanced. Mm. Okay, would you advise decreasing training volume when cutting? Let's consider two cases. Case one: mm, I train very high. I train with very high volume during a bulk, so that I can barely recover from it. Mm. In case two: I train with decent volume during a bulk and I can recover very well from it. And the question is whether you decrease the volume during a cut. Mm. So if you are at the optimum volume to begin with, so scenario A, so you're at your kind of maximum recoverable volume, then I would decrease the volume. In most of my clients, I've seen better results with that. There's only one study that directly measured this. It's um. And it's not really on cutting versus bulky, it's actually on Ramadan. And they found that athletes in Ramadan progressed in strength faster, not just equally well, but faster, when they cut their volume by 33%. And I think that's a major finding that, to me, supports the concept that an energy deficit is a recovery deficit. And mm -hmm. if you are bulking, you can handle a lot more volume, this I can say with decent certainty if not just if not theoretically then certainly practically and in terms of, uh, of connective course, tissue it health sense. <laughs> yeah it, it makes sense right so you can handle more volume and therefore you should do more volume because the, yeah my idea is at least I'm, I'm definitely with mike israel on this that the more volume you can do and recover from mm. and super compensate from if you want to be technical the better so you get best results by finding how much volume you can do productively recover from super compensate and you get um, best results that way. And that's gonna be a lower amount when you're cutting than when you're bulking. So if you're already pushing it during the bulk, then you most likely have to cut it during the cut. So because the optimal training volume is lower during exactly. a cut because you have, yeah. Yeah, but mm -hmm. kind of your scenario too is where I think a lot of people are, where they weren't yeah. at the optimum to begin with, and then they can probably just maintain the same volume when cutting. Like if you go to the gym three times per week, for example, then you know definitely don't make it twice because uh, you're just going to get worse results. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's switch to training. How does your own training look like? So how often do you work out? So not three uh, times a week, I guess. Daily. Yeah. Only, daily? 
Only thing that's changed is I do kickboxing now. So, I mean, it's technically a full body workout-ish, I guess. But I don't do strength training on that day. All the other days I do strength training. So I basically do six or seven times full body strength training per uh, every week. And I've done that all the last years. I've experimented a little bit with other phases of like upper lower and I really didn't like it. Felt there, there were no benefits, only downsides, which is also what the research finds. Um, in general, the volume is king, but there are a lot of practical benefits, especially in terms of time efficiency of doing full body workouts. So yeah, I'm definitely on the, the high frequency bandwagon. If people hear full body, they always, they always, everyone <laughs> thinks you're doing full body. <laughs> I mean, every muscle every day and lots of sets, but, but I guess you're not doing every muscle every day. So, or, or do you? I am, but the volume is but volume moderated. Is low. Yeah. And I make sure that there's high differentiation in training mm. stimulus. So one day you could do high rep overhead tricep extensions and the other day you have more lower rep or indirect stimulus from pressing exercises maybe lap prayers something like that so if you have i think if you have very different exercises and the total weekly volume that's the most important thing is not excessive then most research actually find that recovery capacity seems to if anything be enhanced by greater training frequencies might be because it's better active recovery because you're training every day there's blood flow tissue turnover Uh, that might help. There's research showing that the testosterone to cortisol ratio is better with higher training frequencies, that uh, RPE is lower. And I think that's in particular because your workouts are a lot shorter. So you never get into massively fatigued states. You're, you're always relatively fresh during your workouts and then you're done relatively quickly. You go home, you go again. And that's also some research, for example, shows you have higher average muscle activity levels because you're more fresh. You don't spend as much time in a neuromuscularly fatigued state. Are you really training every muscle every day? Because mm -hmm. let's take the, the hamstrings. Are you, are you doing every day either leg curls, lying, seating, or good mornings, or Romanian deadlifts? Yep. Every day, okay. Okay, easy. Yep. And every day, either squats, leg press, or leg extensions, or hex squats for quads? Yep. And okay. in some days, I would count, for example, bicycle sprints plus hip thrust as squat volume. Hip thrust, interesting, yep. okay. If you do hip thrust with the ankles uh, kind of tucked, it actually, the quad activation mm -hmm. is very high. It's okay. uh, on par with squats in EMG research, at least. I oh. don't think the training stimulus is quite the same, but you can really feel it as well. And, it, and again, the crucial part is that you tuck the heels. If you put your mm. heels further forward, you, the legs are more straight, then you engage the hamstrings more and you take out the quads almost entirely. If you tuck the... Um, The ankles and you basically you, you pull your ankles up as close as possible to your hips then it has a very high uh, quad activation mm -hmm. have you ever performed two exercises for the same muscle group on one day yes yeah i mean i've, I've done those programs as well but now with full body i definitely don't do that that's so, so, so never huh? but 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 what if if you are already training with let's say 20 sets for quads per week and you're already doing one exercise for quads on a day so would you all th th then you would come to a point where you have to add another quad exercise i guess otherwise you would just add sets 
for your current number of quad exercises. And, but, but, but if you're already doing four or five sets of an exercise, I guess you would add another exercise for the same muscle group, right? Yeah, but if you're doing five sets every day, then you're doing okay, five sets per muscle group. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Mm. I think there is some research that people still tolerate six sets per day. And I've tried six, eight, and ten. Um, but that every day yeah that clearly resulted in uh, in overreaching yeah. maybe even mild overtraining especially 10 sets and a lot of injuries <laughs> so i don't think that's productive there is some research that you can go up to those volumes but it's mostly with short rest intervals probably not training to true failure even though the studies said they, they train to failure and uh, yeah i think for, for most people it's just even if your muscles can handle it then your connective tissues can't Mm-hmm. How many reps, if any, do you keep in reserve when training? Uh, usually no reps in reserve, but not hitting failure. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. So if that's most time define, So absolute mu- muscular failure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you completed the last rep with good form and could have not done another rep with good form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I estimated. I think. Yeah, of course. Probably sometimes, if you had put a gun to my head, there are scenarios yeah. where I could have squeezed out another rep. Not only sometimes. Yeah, not. but I go, I go pretty close to failure. Mm-hmm. That's, that suits me best by far. I don't like leaving anything in the tank, and I just know that hitting momentary muscle failure, like actually failing a rep, is really bad, especially if you're going to do more sets for that muscle group, because it induces a disproportionate fatigue relative to the training stimulus, which is almost non-existent. Like a failed rep is very little uh, tension on the muscle because it's it's not even one full range of motion repetition, right? So it's it's very ad- little additional stimulus. And it's also what the research finds that failure per se doesn't aid muscle growth or strength development at all. And for strength development in particular, it's even detrimental because it induces a lot of fatigue and that failed rep is not gonna have good technique. And as soon as you get very close to failure or yet failure, multi-unit recruitment actually starts decreasing, which from strength development is most likely detrimental because you want super high muscle activity. Strength is in a large part a neural phenomenon. So to, for maximum strength development, you want maximum muscle activity, which is not possible when you're very fatigued. So most research finds it's the total volume, the total repetition volume that's most important. And actually hitting failure doesn't really get you much of anything, uh, but it does induce a lot of fatigue and therefore is worse for strength development and for muscle growth, just wasted effort. And why not keep one or two reps in reserve? You could, you could. Um, most research finds, like on, on meta-analyses, we've also done a, a good in-house one, that the total, every rep you do does still matter. So it is more time efficient to do as many reps as you can. Time efficient. And personally, I also, like, I don't like leaving reps in the tank. I like to go all out. So it, it suits me well to train like this. It's also the most accurate because research shows that most people underestimate how many reps they can do. Mm. And as soon as you go more like one or two reps in the tank, it becomes quite iffy. Like if you do every rep that you can, it's relatively clear instruction. Most people know they just have to give maximum effort. But as soon as you give a little bit of a buffer, like you can do, you can leave one or two reps in the tank, then that one or two quite quickly translates into four. Yeah. You, you have an excuse. The yeah. struggle in your head during the last reps, you can always say, ah, it's, it's two reps in reserve. And in, yeah. in reality it's 10 or something like this well, yeah you sometimes you even see that in research that's yeah. it's actually 10 instead of two <laughs> yeah in particular if you think muscular failure is dangerous to, mm-hmm. to your gains which which some people think 
Um, how has your own training evolved over the last year or hasn't it changed at all? We already talked about frequency, but maybe you have a new favorite exercise or th something like this. I'd say the last one or two years, the biggest development has been the research on stretch-mediated hypertrophy. So it's, it's now quite clear that in general training at longer muscle lengths is a surefire way to gain substantially more strength and muscle. That phenomenon has been termed stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And that, I think, is, for most traditional programs, an absolute game-changer. Because if you look at, for example, how most people train their biceps, they do biceps curls, dumbbell curls, and essentially nothing that trains the biceps while in, at long muscle lengths. So they literally in, have no incline, exercise. Inclined bicep curls on an inclined bench or stuff it's, like that. It's this. okay. You do lengthen the biceps, but it still doesn't uh, put high tension on it in the bottom position because you're still using a dumbbell, which is mm, when the okay, arm is straight, so, uh, gravitational resistance, the external moment arm is zero. So, so you do it with the cable, I guess. So yes, I like Bayesian curls. curls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bayesian yeah. curls. Those have become pretty popular in lap prayers too. Um, since I, especially I think since I wrote the article, I see so many people do them, like all, all across the world. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> do you remember those chicken studies? So where, where they, um, I think... They put they, weights on their wings? Yeah, maybe? exactly. Mm -hmm. Was this the start of the research? So the stretch media Yeah, kind stuff? of. Kind yeah. of. And that's also when I was like... Uh, this is nonsense. <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> because people are saying it's like uh, stretch medial hypertrophy, but they were saying it it's because it length it creates room in the muscle and it expands the fascicles, which is total bullshit. Bullshit. Like there's there's no research on that. Fascicles are extremely extremely stiff. Like you know you have to pull on it with a, a tank stiff, not just you no know, difficult to stretch. So that 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 theory has been completely debunked. But it seems that the Research on this is not entirely clear, but it seems that the passive tension, the loading of titan, that seems to be a stimulus for, for muscle growth. So it is still mechanical tension quite directly, but it's passive tension and in part titan, which is kind of spring-loaded during eccentric muscle contractions, especially when you get to long muscle lengths. Do you think there might be a benefit of focusing even on the stretch position? So if I do... Mm, let's say fl cable flies mm -hmm. so the resistance curve is pretty smooth might there be a benefit of only doing half reps but bottom half reps so stretch until half stretch until half might be that's currently i think one of the most interesting research questions we have because we have two studies now that do show that this is true but for leg extensions and calf raises in um, were they untrained? They were basically untrained, I think. So it's it's in, yeah no no they were untrained in both studies, and that's a big limitation because untrained individuals don't have maximum muscle fascicle length yet, which means they actually get stretch mediated hypertrophy not just via muscle growth by the muscle thickening, like the additional um, sarcomeres in parallel but also by lengthening of the muscle fascicles, which might be the addition of sarcomeres in series or actually just lengthening of the, the sarcomeres, which is interesting. Uh, probably there is a limit to that, I would imagine. And there is certainly a limit to the total amount of muscle fascicle length increase that you can get because the muscle is fixed between the origin and the insertion. So at some point it would just get ludicrous. So you would have like this slab of meat that's just hanging there, right? 
So that, that won't happen. And in an untrained individual, you just get, you just probably get um, exaggerated effects of stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And I think it also depends a lot on the exercise, because both calf raises and leg extensions have clear sticking points in the top. If you really do full range of motion training or leg extensions, you go like full, fully straight legs, calf raises, full ankle lockout. The top parts are by far the most difficult. So if you do partial reps, you can use substantially more weight. And but that it might depends on the machine, right? On leg extension, sometimes you yeah, have yeah. machines in, which are in, easier at the top. In theory, it depends on the machine. Most mm. leg extensions machines, though, yeah. uh, they don't have great resistance in the bottom. Like you, you can basically test it. Like if you can do substantially more weight when you don't get full leg straightening, then uh, it's top heavy, which means uh, the sticking points at the top, whereas ideally it would probably be in the bottom. Mm. And then you might benefit from doing partials because you can use more weight. And that's more passive tension in the long muscle lengths and maybe also more active tension even. And then it might be beneficial. So that's still not entirely clear. I think there, there must be a limit to this. But I think some exercises might benefit from that. I'm usually a proponent of selecting better exercises. But in the case of, for example, if you just don't have a good leg extension machine in your gym, yeah, then it might actually be beneficial to do partial reps instead of full reps most of the time. Mm -hmm, okay. I find this very interesting because if it was true, let's say for my uh, cable fly example, if it was true that the bottom half is more affected than the, than the upper half, if the, the bottom part is more, so where, where's the limit? Uh, we have a trade-off between range of motion and the stretch part. So if if it's more effective if I only go to half, if, is it maybe even more effective if I only do quarter reps? And if this is the case, mm -hmm. is it even more effective if I just hold the weight, which is, I guess, not the case, but so there must be mm -hmm. a sweet spot. Yeah, that's, I mean, those are good questions. That's, We're now basically at the stage where we're investigating these types of questions, and we don't have good studies on this mm -hmm. yet. We do know that there is probably a limit. I think for one, just holding the stretch is not going to cut it because uh, we know that Titan is very effectively spring-loaded during eccentric muscle actions, and in general, you're really strong during eccentric muscle actions. So you probably want to keep those in. I think just holding isometric longest muscle length may not be ideal. Most of the benefits of full range of motion training are most likely due to stretch mediated hypertrophy. So do you lose out on anything if you miss out the top part of range motion? Maybe not. But we also know that at different muscle lengths and at different parts of an exercise in general, you emphasize different muscle fibers. So maybe it's ideal to do like bottom half partials for the muscle on average, but there are certain muscle fibers which you target better at the top part. Mm. And then if we go to practical application, is the muscle damage that you, that you get from those heavy, heavy gas partial lengthened reps, because it, it probably is a more muscle damage, is that worth it? Or would you be better off with a combination because you can probably handle more volume if you also do, for example, the cable chest presses in there, which have the sticking point in full contraction. So you, maybe you can handle more volume. Plus, if you're always changed, uh, hitting the same joint positions with muscles at long lengths, You're probably at greater risk for overuse injuries. So I think in practice, even if it's true that stretch-mediated hypertrophy really is the, the end-all be-all of muscle growth, there are probably still a lot of cases where you do want full ROM training and just banking everything on stretch-mediated hypertrophy is not 
gonna be ideal. Also, we have one study where they combined, where they compared cable biceps curls, not Bayesian curls, unfortunately, but cable curls basically with a preacher curl bench, uh-huh. which means that you actually don't get um, it's 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 a really silly exercise actually because. The whole point of a cable is that you kind of get good tension across the whole range of motion, which you don't get with a dumbbell. But then they do it in a preacher curl bench with the, the low cable pulley, so there's no tension in the bottom position. Right? You're, you, it, basically, the tension disappears when you're like, um, like mm-hmm. this. So arm almost straightened. And then they also did dumbbell preacher curls, which are really heavy on stretch media hypertrophy because it's, like, it's only the bottom part of the movement that is, um, that's loaded. Now, it's not ideal because you have the shoulder forward and that shortens the biceps a little bit, but we have other studies showing that it's enough. It induces meaningfully more muscle growth to um, still in the preacher curl position to train at longer lengths versus shorter lengths, even if the long length is not the maximal length. So that in itself shows we probably don't have to reach maximal length, just getting to high length and fully banking on stretch media hypertrophy, like always emphasizing the bottom position of the movement or stretch position, longest muscle length, also isn't necessary, or at least based on this, this, this one study, for maximum muscle growth. So all in all, I'm inclined to say, if you have some exercises in your program that train the long lengths of the muscle very well, then probably you're gonna be okay. You don't have to have all of your exercises do this, and also not every exercise has to maximize the tension in the stretch position like then we'd all be doing only like preacher curls um many weird exercises actually if you think about it like dumbbell flies would be really good and for what it's worth anecdotally dumbbell flies have also not really panned out to be like you know uh to have a reputation as being the best possible chest builders so i'm, I'm skeptical of the idea that we would need to do that mm-hmm. So do you think a squat and a leg extension does form good symbiosis because mm-hmm. the leg extension is top heavy and the squat is stretch heavy? Yes, and one is open chain, one is closed kinetic chain. Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah. that those are is a perfect example of an exercise pairing that does really well with high frequency training. Even though you hit the quads two days in a row, they hit them quite differently. They stress the joints very differently. So you can handle that very well. Mm-hmm. When designing a training program, One of the first important steps is to to decide how much volume to do measured in hard sets. How do you set weekly volume before someone starts doing that program? And how do you adjust volume once you gathered some training data? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the most important decisions mm-hmm. that anyone has to make when designing training programs. And it's it's a difficult question because it's probably very individual. So if I have to give like an ideal volume range based on the latest uh, meta-analytic research, you're looking at like 10 to 30 sets per week per muscle group. That's a big range, right? So is this the number James Krieger also included in his volume and frequency Bible? I don't know whether you you read it. I think he usually says 10 to 20. And I say Mm. it's usually 10 to 30. But we have studies showing 45 is better than 30. So clearly Mm. it depends on the context. Mm. And we also have studies showing that something like 15 is better than 25. So those are different studies, different populations, different training status, and different recovery capacity probably. So you have to factor in a number of um, demands. So for my PT course students, I have a calculator, and I think it has six inputs, which is energy balance. Like, are you bulking? Are you cutting? Male, female, 
women can probably handle uh, a little bit more volume. I've been conservative in general because there's not, not a lot of direct research on this. It's, it's mostly indirect research. And at some point, age becomes a factor, but volume is the last thing you want to compromise on. Then recovery capacity in general. And I think this is the most underrated individual component of, for most people's program design. Your stress level and your sleep level make a huge difference in your recovery capacity. Like many people know it matters, but they don't realize just how astronomical the effects are. For example, research finds that people, students in exam weeks, they take about twice as long to recover as they normally do from a given workout. Well, So you're basically looking at, if you're going to MRV, like maximum recoverable volume, you're looking at that being probably half of what it usually is. And then sleep also has huge effects. If we look at um, not just recovery studies, but on sleep, we actually have a lot of studies measuring nutrient partitioning or P-ratios, like the ratio of muscle to fat that people gain on a program. You see effects like 50 to 80%. So like even relatively minor sleep deprivation that you commonly see is like 50% less fat loss, 50% more muscle loss during a diet. I have a two years old daughter, so... Um... I have a good excuse when I not <laughs> perform very well and when I gain some fat, I guess. Yeah, so you, you have to prioritize sleep in terms of mm. just getting the hours at other times, um, like really high sleep quality when you do get sleep, uh, just practical stuff like division of labor, making sure you don't have to go out of bed um, both at the same time, every time, those kind of things. And yeah, I mean, having kids is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have kids? No. Okay. So I always work until I sleep. And I know it's not optimal. Of mm -hmm. course it's not. Because it takes me a long time to, to wind down. And so it, ta it takes me, I would say, one hour on average until I'm asleep. Mm -hmm. And it's because I work until, until I brush my teeth and go to bed. Um, but, but I'm always skeptical because if I... If I finished my work one hour earlier, then it's one hour less work. Do you think it's worth it, your, your gut feeling? I mean, just in terms of how much stuff I get done during the day. I always sleep nine hours or mm -hmm. before my daughter was born. If you still sleep nine hours, probably it's fine. No, um, I, I, lie, I lie in the bed nine hours, so I will sleep seven to eight hours, I guess. I mean, if you sleep at least seven and a half, you're probably fine. If you wake up naturally without an alarm, you feel good. You're, you're most likely good. Research, research really hasn't found any better measure of sleep quality than just subjective sleep quality, at least if you have a good idea of what it means to... And we have the exact same water bottle. That, um, of what it means to have good sleep. But I'm, I'm never tired during the day. I, I guess mm -hmm. this is a good sign, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, <laughs> those, those, those kind of cues are actually usually, usually better than uh, aura rings or whatever. So oh. the thing, though is most research finds that people's maximum productive hours per day are very low, like four. It's like four really good hours of productivity per day. And there's also quite some research on when people reduce their weekly number of work hours. Now, probably this depends on motivation. So if you're super motivated, you can work more than most people. But in terms of like really productive, high, highly intellectual work, it's probably not a lot more. So Most what is Elon Musk doing the entire day? Well, he's, he's definitely a specimen in terms of his um, ability to, to 
have singular focus on something and he's not you know a completely normal personality type he, he's not human no, no he's not human Definitely and not. i still wonder I, I seriously wonder if he would be less productive if he took a little bit more time off and had a little mm. bit more work-life balance probably i mean i don't know his personal life and everything so um hard to say individual details but in general i think that many people they and i have the same thing i have like i have like protestant guilt when it comes to uh, with any type of leisure time makes me feel guilty <laughs> which is messed up but uh, I found that if I reduce my work hours I don't achieve less so if you actually measure what you produce not just the time you spend working but what you produce then I found very strongly and I've consulted quite a few individuals that have reported the same you don't achieve less you just work less and you have more fun and the hours that you do have, they are just more productive. And the things that you end up doing over the day, often if you really think about it, like at the end of the day, write down what you have produced. Like what have you written down? What have you found in terms of research or something? It's usually not that much that you can do in one day because the mind is just limited. And most research also finds that when people cut their work hours, even for factory work, they actually increase their productivity. So there have been these, what is it, during... Um, the, in America and in England, there were these bills that required people to limit the work hours because factory workers were being exploited immensely, working 80 hours per week, doing heavy physically demanding labor. And when they cut the hours to 60, and Ford has also done in-house studies on this, they cut them to 60, I think, once, and then again to 40 another time, and they increased their productivity. It's not just didn't just stay the same, they actually became more productive when Basically, going from 80 to 40, they cut their work hours in half. Just, just more productive in terms of output per hour or total. also the sum? In total. To total, okay. So, yeah. okay. so I mean, it, it's kind of like, if you think of a workout as, a, um, as an example, how much are you really going to achieve if your workout is going to be five hours? You know, mm -hmm. after the first hour, you're pretty much spent. You're not doing much anymore. And probably you go into it knowing, okay, this is a five-hour workout. So your first hours are also not going to be maximum effort. You just you always leave some in the tank. You're not maximally focused. You're in it for the long haul. You know you you know it's going to be a grind. Whereas if you only have one hour and you know okay I only have one hour. This is it. I have to make the most of it. And it's boom boom boom. You might actually achieve either the same thing, which is usually more common in my experience, or maybe even more. Uh, there have been also a few relatively recent studies. I think the Economist published a nice article where they also found that uh, productivity stayed pretty much the same when people cut their work hours, even below 40. But what if you work out for two hours and then play chess for two hours and then study for two hours and then do something else for two hours? So you work the entire time, but have different tasks to do? Mm -hmm. That would be really good. And I think that is actually one of the main, the most important tips that I give in my book is to take breaks. Because it's the... The constant fatigue of doing the same thing for hours on end, that's what um, gets most people down. Whereas if you're doing different things, and especially if you intersperse them with breaks, then you can completely re-energize. And this is also what research finds. Um, Bjornsson has done great research on this in, uh, in elite performers of various disciplines, sports and intellectual feats as well. And he finds that most of the most successful, the most productive people in the world, they don't do more work than people that are also at the top, but not quite at the elite level. The difference is that the, the people at the top, 
they, when they do what they do, they are very mindful, they are very productive, they're very focused, and they take more breaks. So there's no point in trying to, when you're like, you get to that point where you're working and you're like, you know that your attention is kind of drifting and you're looking at the screen and then 20 minutes later, you think back, oh, actually, I still haven't started that email. At that time, you would have been much more productive to use that 20 minutes to, I don't know, watch a series of something you like or socialize or do something fun. Then come back, you would have been completely fresh and you can actually be super productive again. Just to prove that I read your book on self-control, I I know why you scheduled the podcast for 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. because you uh, you I guess you would be very tired if you did the thing you did in the morning, the same work. But as the podcast is something audiovisual, I guess mm -hmm. that's the right term. Yeah, um, it's something totally different than to the stuff you did before, where you didn't talk a lot. I guess. And so what was the task fatigue? Was it task fatigue? Mm -hmm. The task fatigue is, is low in terms of yeah, something audiovisual. And that's why you do a podcast in the evening. Yes. And I feel the same. So 6 p.m. Was, was perfectly fine for me. Yep. And not only that, it's not just a change of stimulus, but also, as you say, auditory stimulus induces less fatigue in humans than visual stimulus or other types of uh, uh, stimuli. Because we are human and it might be in your in our blood, and in yeah. our genes. And especially social things, like listening to people, it just comes super natural to us. It's not that fatiguing. Social interaction and having to perform public speaking alike is. Yeah. But it's still like meetings, just listening to things. Like that's also probably why podcasts are so popular because it's, it's relatively low effort compared to a book. Like a podcast is more like receiving and a book you have to read, right? So it makes some sense that you have to allocate your resources more deliberately when you're reading or writing, whereas when you're listening to something, you can, in large part, just kind of let it absorb and you don't get as much fatigue from that. More importantly, like you say, if you do podcasts in the morning, then it's almost certainly going to fatigue you for the rest of the day, especially doing the podcast, listening to them, maybe not so much, but doing them for sure, whereas I can have a complete fully functional workday and now at six I do a podcast and actually at five already I started consultations but and then I do consultations podcasts and the like and I still have the fully uh, functional workday before that and it doesn't impact that at all so I just have a couple extra hours of productive time that are not going to interfere with my work mm. yeah I feel totally the same what triggered you to write that book so it's a book on self-control what's the name The science of self-control. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's okay. it's basically about 10 years of notes that I felt like really became a, a full book. And a lot of people asked me to write a book and say, you need to put out a book. And I told them like, well, it's not going to be Bayesian bodybuilding. It's going to be actually something more lifestyle and everything. So yeah, I just had a lot of content that I couldn't really get well, or I couldn't publish very well in terms of post format, like on my Instagram and YouTube. They're topics that require a little bit more um, depth and the, like the whole central concept of the book, understanding how self-control works. That is the biggest first part of the book. And then when you know that, you can understand all of the other subjects. But if I would individually post about all the other things, then you wouldn't understand them as well. Or every time I would have to explain how self-control works. Mm. So it, it's, I think, a perfect topic for a book where you learn something integral about how the human mind works 
and then how you can apply that to various domains of your life to be more successful. Whereas you, know, you, can't, you can't do that so well in, in posts. What are doing most people wrong when it comes to self-control? Not taking breaks. That's a huge okay. one. That's like, I think yeah. um, they just try to hammer on and on because we have this cultural idea that willpower and discipline, like the iron, iron fist approach, you know, just work harder, don't sleep. Arnold Schwarzenegger and the like are like big um, champions of, of that approach. And maybe maybe that works if you're Elon Musk or Arnold Schwarzenegger, but for the, the other 99.9999% of the population, uh, it's not the way to go. It's not human. Like you have to be a robot or like an absolute killer to um, mm. to to still be functional and to be like, oh, I'm tired, but I'm still going at full speed every day um, on. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is particularly interesting uh, with respect to his sleep. I think he only sleeps four hours. I think four hours. I don't know. Well, I, I have to say, anyone that says that, I'm always very skeptical. Yeah. Like I, I've had a lot of people say, yeah, they, they say like, I only sleep this much. And uh, for example, funny story, one of my researchers uh, that works in my team, he also said that like, I don't sleep much. And then we had a, a meetup and he would slept for like 16 hours. So it turns out that... On the he, weekend. So. Yeah. So it turns out that he usually sleeps four hours per day, but then sometimes he completely crashes and he sleeps like enormous amounts of time, right? And it's also with people's uh, self-reported energy intake. It's like, mm. I don't lose any fat while I'm, and I'm eating 1,200 calories a day. Well, it turns out they're indeed eating 1,200 calories a day, five days a week, but then two days a week, they massively overcompensate yeah. uh, and eat a lot of crap. And they tilt up their weekly total average energy intake a lot above 1,200 to the point that they're no longer energy deficit. So yeah, I'm always uh, skeptical of these mm. things. Again, I think Arnold's a legend. I'm not going to... Um, dispute his claims you're saying he's, uh, he's full of it but <laughs> if anyone could do it it will be Arnold but I don't think it's applicable for the vast majority of uh, people what are your personal biggest productivity struggles um, I, I, th I think my productivity is pretty um, pretty dialed in I think one big thing that changed for me in the last two years is where um, where I wanted to go from here because at some point I think I became a little bit complacent where I was like, yeah, I've, I've achieved a lot. I've kind of crossed off the bucket list items that I wanted to achieve. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm financially secure. So why, you know, what, what's, what's there left? And now I, I actually inspired by Alex Ramosi to see the purpose of growth itself as, as, as the game, essentially. Now we have a very different mindset. He's much more money oriented than I am. But I do like the idea of seeing growth and trying to help as many people as possible, putting out more products, making my PT course even better and even better, making sure it's like bar none, the best PT certification on the planet. That in itself is a very interesting uh, growth target, I think. So it, you don't have to have like concrete goals because those eventually you're going to reach them and then what? You know, if you want a 300 pound bench press, at some point you're going to bench 300 and then what? Right? If you're not in the mindset of, I just have a growth mindset, I want to get more and more, then your motivation is going to dwindle when you do reach the goals that you set. You said you are financially secured. Have you ever thought about just quitting work and just doing stuff you, you, you enjoy? Of course, you also enjoy working, but not, mm -hmm. not all the time, I guess. So, But have, have you thought about quitting everything? And Yeah, d definitely not. Uh, I mean, I've considered it, and I know I'd be miserable. Mm -hmm. I'd be absolutely miserable. Um, but my dad's the same way. But you would have hobbies, of course. Yes, but I mean, I 
I'm really passionate about what I do. So okay. for me, That's it good. really isn't. There's a great quote. Um, you know, if your if your work's your passion, you never. Or as soon as you can, I think the quote is something like uh, I'm butchering it for sure. <laughs> if as soon as you can monetize your passion, you never work another day in your life uh-huh. because you're just following your passion, and it happens to generate income. And that's really what it feels like for me. So there are a lot of things where we have to, as soon as we make decisions in the team, like maybe this will generate income, but we have to screw people over or it's deceptive. No, like I, in my team, I always say like, we, we are capitalists. Like if we can generate more money via, well, by something that actually also helps other people. Cause usually if you have value-based transactions, the more you sell, the more you help people, right? Like you're both better off. You have a sale. One person has information that they now wanted. One person has money. So actually both parties are better off. You are an economist. You you know that. Yes. But we have so many members in our family who think rich people are bad somehow because mm-hmm. there must be that. something uh, something bad. But if if you believe in capitalism and demand and supply, you know that the price is the result of demand and supply. And if demand mm-hmm. is high and supply <clears throat> is is low and and you deliver value then you get a lot of money and yeah but yep. i don't know why so many people may, maybe they are just envious of rich people this could also be the case but yeah, but i think is... most people don't get the thing of demand and supply no they definitely don't they don't they don't have any background in economics that's one and also uh, there's definitely an envy component and in general There's research that when someone has high status in any way, whether it's money or a good physique or whatever, it kind of makes people feel bad about themselves. And for a lot of people, it's just easier to pull other people down and to pull yourself up. So it's easier to say, well, uh, Jeff Bezos has all that money. I'm not a big fan of Bezos, I have to say, but he has all that money and he's doing these things and uh, you know, he's, he's a terrible person or Bill Gates or Elon Musk. And I mean, I think Elon is honestly really I, I believe his his intentions and he could also easily retire and he, he doesn't have to do all the projects that he does you could argue whether he's doing the right thing with twitter but i believe his intentions and i think bill gates is also definitely not the devil people make him out to be he's done an enormous amount yeah, of charity yeah, work yeah. and i don't know if you if this is interesting for your podcast but it is definitely. An example okay good so jeff bezos built a boat in close to my hometown where i uh, grew up and <laughs> Uh, but what was it the, the, the this very big yacht yeah and it couldn't fi- it couldn't um yeah. go out to sea because the boat was too big <laughs> so in the netherlands they had to break down a bridge mm. to actually get the boat out i don't know the exact story i don't know if it happened yeah. or stuff but i do know the boat was being built because i actually know the people that were working on it and even in that town the general consensus was jeff bezos is basically the devil And you just he's he's breaking down bridges, even though it wasn't bridge that wasn't being used, I think, to uh, just because he wants that yacht and he's probably not even going to use it. But what people don't understand is that all that money he's spending, and I, and I kind of agree, it's it's absolutely ridiculous to spend money on that. But that aside, if you look at it from an economic point of view, he's giving that money to other people. He's employing hundreds or maybe thousands of people. So people would have loved him. To some extent, if he had just given all these people that money. But with his decision to buy a boat, he's also making all of these people better off, at least to the extent that they like their job or, you know, you're assuming that they do the job because 
they're they're better off from it. I think that's a fair assumption in, in the Netherlands at least. So he's actually making all of these people that work on the boat better off. So he's doing a lot of good, like he's helping a lot of people, even if it's not humanitarian or um, he's not doing it, you know, from the kindness of his own heart. In the end, he is helping a lot of people. Bill Gates as well with Microsoft. You can complain about it. I certainly complain about it a lot. But it's still an amazing operating system that helps people enormously. Like imagine if we didn't have uh, computers. Like he, he's a big part of, you can argue just right place, right time and everything, but he's a big part of having shaped uh, information technology as we know it. So the amount of good that he has done for humanity, whether he was doing it for humanitarian reasons or not, is immense. I get at least one package from Amazon per day. So we are three people, my wife, mm -hmm. my daughter, and I. And t today I got the package. My, my, my daughter um, gets two years old on Friday. So it's a birthday present for her. It was um, 20 euros. I paid 20 euros for it. And my personal maxim maximum price was definitely 100 euros because when I give it to her and I see, I, I ho hopefully it, it will be the case that she's very happy, but I guess she will be very happy. And that's at, at most 100 euro worth to me. So I made a profit of 75 euros for buying this package. And this is just one example. I get seven packages a week. And I wouldn't buy those packages if I didn't make at least zero profit. So it profits mm -hmm. me, benefits me a lot. And I guess everyone is doing that because otherwise they would not buy those packages. So <laughs> Jeff Bezos is just helping all of us so much. Mm -hmm. um, not because he is rich, but his money just reflects how much benefit He, he gets out in the world. So I exactly I like yeah. him a lot because of that. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> um, be besides training, eating, and increasing your productivity, what do you like to do in your free time? Uh, I play chess. Ah, okay. Um, I did that as a kid a lot. Won quite some medals and then kind of gave up on it. And recently I've gotten back to it. Uh, like I said, I do kickboxing, go to the gym every day. I uh, try to socialize a lot with my girlfriend, spend, you know, a lot of quality time together. I like going to restaurants, in particular sushi. Not being on most restaurants, it has to be healthy. Um, sushi is already as, as, as cheaty for me as it gets. And uh, I like some podcasts, books, getting more into podcasts actually recently, and videos, YouTube in general. What, what podcasts? Uh, martial arts. I like modern wisdom a lot. Like usually I, I try to make it not about fitness because I already read lots of papers and like I spent most of my day reading about fitness, answering questions about fitness. All of the scientific papers I read pretty much are about um, fitness. So Joe, and that's my Joe Rogan, I guess, if it's martial arts. Yeah, mostly uh, clips. Like, I, I mean, I never have time to watch like a three hour whole thing. <laughs> so I, I like the clips. Yeah, I like Joe. Um, I would say Modern Wisdom is probably my, my favorite podcast in terms of the type of guest that he um, that Chris puts on the show. I like that. And just letting the YouTube algorithm work its magic and give me random things that I uh, might enjoy based on my previous um, likes. Do you like the Lex Friedman podcast? Yeah, I like it. My um, favorite one. Yeah, I think also more clips. He's, they're also very long. Very, I, I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just never have time i usually want something that i'm doing as break like 20 minutes or so 
Um, but can, 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 you, can you not continue watching it or do you need to yeah, watch it yeah. in, in one session? Yeah, you, you could do that. I mean, then I'm watching the podcast all week, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are you still a digital nomad? Uh, technically, yeah. I still travel quite a bit, but my girlfriend's in Madrid, so I spend a lot of time here. And I'll actually live in Portugal, technically, and I'm, I'm going there this weekend to uh, hopefully formalize this uh, purchase of a house. Cool. Uh, so then I'm, I'm close to Madrid. And yeah, I still have some public speaking engagements and travel. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm a semi-stranded digital nomad between <laughs> Portugal and Madrid at the moment. <laughs> okay. It was a pleasure talking to you, Mano. Thank you so much for your time. Please let us know where we can follow you and what services and products you offer. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Um, anything you can find about me, menohenselmans.com or on YouTube, it's at menohenselmans. On Instagram, it's at, at menohenselmans. And best way is to go to my website and check out my free email course. Currently, there's also a, a PT course coming up 26 May. But free email course, start with that. So, you know, see if you like the free content. And then if you like that, then maybe you can buy the, the whole pro thing. But you get a lot of um, value from that tour of my most popular contents and just a lot of good stuff. So I start with that. Nice. Thank you so much. See you soon. Pleasure. I hope you liked the interview with Mano. If you did, please rate the Alpha Progression Podcast five stars in your podcast app. And if you haven't already done so, check out the Alpha Progression app to plan and track your workouts. Have a great week. See you soon.